Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sephora stores are everywhere you are. So just pop in when you need a brown lip to match your 90s playlist. A confidence boost before your interview? Or a last-minute gift for mom's birthday? There's always a Sephora near you. Just pop in. Use our store locator to find your local Sephora or Sephora at Kohl's. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very interested, excited, intrigued to be interviewing two authors today who share a lot of really useful perspectives in their book. And I think that that relationship over what seems like multiple decades of working together that comes through beautifully in their book is also going to come out in today's interview. Um, So their book is just as interesting as it seems their sort of way of relating to each other is. It's titled When Art Isn't Real, The World's Most Controversial Objects Under Investigation. Uh, The book's just been published in 2022, and it talks about how objects, art objects, are valued, valueless, how we determine whether or not they're real or frauds and what impact that has through all sorts of really interesting techniques and combined ways of investigating. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Andrew Shortland and Dr. Patrick DeGreese. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm hoping that we can start off with each of you introducing yourselves, your academic backgrounds a bit, and then explain to us why you decided to write this book and decided to write it together. Okay, so I'll start with my background and then go on to Patrick, and then then, then I'll come on to why we started to write the book. Um, so my background, um, my first degree is geology, um, a master's degree in prehistoric archaeology, and my doctorate's in Egyptology. Um, I was always fascinated in in objects and analyzing objects um, uh, and the way objects work um, started with rocks doing geology and, and glass in geology um, and then moved on um, to more archaeological materials again rocks and glass actually we'll talk about that metals ceramics um, so and the analysis of them um, starting off from a very academic point of view, um, you know, how was an object made? Why was it made? What was it used for? But then, as this book reflects, moving on also to to objects that are not quite what they pretend to be, to fakes and forgeries. So I think that's my background. Over to you, Patrick. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm I'm a geologist, uh, basically. I studied 
geochemistry and then uh, did a PhD um, applying those geochemical techniques to an archaeological site looking for uh, raw materials, how clays were used for ceramics, how, how glass was molten, how ores were uh, smelted into metals and so stuck with um, the archaeology and, and moved to archaeological sciences and so my expertise now is developing those methods to analyze raw materials, to reconstruct um, the networks that, that are used to get raw materials to sites and then to make man-made materials in many different periods and, and contexts. So a methodological approach, I teach this uh, very much in an academic context. And from that um, archaeological science uh, perspective, uh, we've been working together for, for many, many years now. And so that's how, how this progressed into the book that lies before us. So that does um, sort of give obviously an idea of why you two seem to be such an effective team having the different pieces. Um, but what made you decide to translate or capture some of this relationship into a book? Well, I think we both, um, we've both written books, uh, academic texts. Um, uh, and I think we both decided we wanted to write something that people would actually read, um, something that was uh, a little more popular, something that you might pick up if you were at the, uh, in the bookshop at Heathrow and faced with a long flight um, and just wanted to read something interesting. So I think that's why um, we decided to write the book. Um, why did we decide to write it together? Um, well, as I said to Patrick earlier on, I couldn't find anyone better to write it with me. Um, yeah, ask lots true. Of people, ask lots of people, but there was nobody. Um, uh, joking apart, um, I like to work with people that I like. Um, uh, and, that, and and Patrick and I have a similar sorts of sense of humor. We have a, we have a laugh together. Um, and if you're going to write a book with someone, there are going to be moments where you're going to need to laugh together. Um, and we've done quite a lot of laughing through this book. Um, so that's the reason uh, why we decided to write it together. What do you think, Patrick? Absolutely. It, it, it's been sort of a natural thing to, to discuss cases and compare war stories uh, in our work. Um, and so the book just flowed naturally from that cooperation. It was just fun doing it. Fun is the main motivator here. <laughs> there are many worse motivations, so that's a great place to start. Um, so as you've sort of alluded to, the book comprises a series of case studies of a particular, each one looks at a particular object, um, kind of what it is, what the story around it is sort of meant to be, and then your investigation about whether or not that is actually true. Um, so quite obviously, you didn't, you couldn't include in the book every case you've ever worked on. So how did you decide which cases to include in this book? Yeah, that, that was really a difficult discussion. There's there's plenty more cases that we've worked on, some we can discuss, some you simply cannot discuss. You're not, you're not allowed to divulge on, on your work there. But um, I think the selection now, we decided that our book should be uh, for everyone to read on, on how um, we do science in the art world, but also the red thread is how people interact with these objects that we analyze, um, including ourselves. It, it The veracity of these objects, uh, whether they're fake or not, is often difficult to, to decide, uh, and we'll come back to that um, 
as we as we speak about these cases and about the book but what what comes forward in the book very well is how these objects how people are get emotional over these objects how they can make or break careers for people um, that work with these objects how it touches people um, how they react emotionally to to seeing the object or handling the object and so we decided the cases uh on the basis of, of can we discuss this interaction of people with um, the objects and the cases? Can we discuss how science deals with that interaction and how it can contribute to that debate? Um, so that's why these these case studies that are in the book are there. Um, can we can we feel the cases? All right. That seems like both a really intangible method of choosing, but also in some ways it seems like exactly one of those, if you know it fits, it just does. Um, So that sounds really interesting. Um, So for this interview, we're obviously going to get into some of the cases in the book, but we're probably not going to be able to cover all of them. Um, And so I've kind of picked the ones that as a reader, I found perhaps particularly interesting or had further questions about. Um, So I wonder if we can start off with the very first case that you talk about in the book, um, which is the Piltdown Man. I believe I've pronounced that to some degree of accuracy. Um, Can you tell us about kind of what this case was, why it fooled so many people and especially so many experts for such a long time? Yeah, Piltdown Man is is, is first in the book. Um, One of our our favourite cases, also the... The oldest case, the one that's that's furthest away in time, and also the oldest objects to be to be faked as well. Um, Piltdown Man um, uh, is um, a a skull and a series of other fossils um, uh, that were found uh, in the early twentieth century near the village of Piltdown, which is in Sussex. Um, they were discovered by a small team, um, a, a local man um, and a, team, a, a couple of people from the. Uh, the Natural History Museum in London, um, and a whole series of finds were made, and they were they were published, um, and a name given to the fossil fossil, Eoanthropus dorsoni, named after one of the finders, that local man, um, and it hit all the headlines, um, and was dubbed the world's first Englishman. It was the earliest known fossil hominid at the time, um, tremendously important, um, great prestige attached to those who were uh, uh, involved in its discovery and its description. At least three of them, I think, were knighted for the work, not only about Piltdown, but for other other fossil um, and anatomy work that they were doing. Um, it was a really, a really fascinating case. Um, uh, and everyone was very happy um, in the UK about about. Piltdown Man about Euanthropus, um, but then as more as as time went by over the decades, literally decades um, went past. Um, Piltdown began to look a little bit odd. Uh, there were other finds um, made of early hominids, particularly out of Africa, um, and Piltdown began to look very strange. Um, uh, and it began to look like maybe this this fossil was sort of some sort of offshoot. Maybe it wasn't one fossil. Maybe it was several uh, combined, uh, sort of uh, two or three animals combined into one, just accidentally found together. Um, and then in the 1950s, um, a group started to look at it seriously with some scientific techniques, and it began to look even more strange. Um, uh, and 
the story tells that one night one of this group was walking back from home from from his lab um, and it suddenly struck him that this fossil couldn't possibly be a fossil and couldn't possibly be have been found um, in a natural way in other words this had to be fraudulently put there with the direct intention to deceive um, uh, and he kept it to quiet himself and then he, he rang his various colleagues and they all suddenly realised the same thing and they contacted the Natural History Museum in London where the fossil was and said have a look at it and, and look particularly at the teeth um, and they looked at the teeth and the teeth had been artificially filed once you started to think about this being wrong not a forgery it immediately began to unravel. It had been artificially stained, artificially filed to make it look more hominid and less and less like a, a an ape. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was a really long term case that suddenly, like a pack of cards, the whole thing collapsed on it um, and left British paleoanthropology looking rather foolish for having supported this thing um, for so long. Um, I think. I mean, why why does it last so long? Um, well, I think no one, no one would seriously have thought in you know in the early twentieth century that an English gentleman would deliberately put fraudulent, not even fossils, fraudulent objects into the ground um, with a deliberate attempt to deceive other academics. Um, but that is definitely what happened, um, and yeah, and it, and it took a long time for that to come out. Patrick, what do you add to that? I think when when only when you want to see, you'll see. Um, and so, because there was so much enthusiasm about the first Englishman, about this this England being able to participate in in paleoanthropology, which up to to then was very much a continental European game, um, everybody wanted it to be there. And so there was a sort of um, incapacity to see the obvious and in as in many of the cases that we discuss once that mindset is changed once you think about something being fraudulent then it becomes possible and and possibly even more evident to see um things that aren't right so it's it's about the mindset um and if that mindset is is set for it has to be true for such a long time then nobody's gonna want to look closer uh that's what happened with Biltow. It's also it's also interesting that the um, that the professor who was at the, the center of this, Arthur Smith Woodward, died um, during the Second World War, um, uh, uh, and so it was only and then after the war, it's after the war, with him not being around, people starting to question a little more. We all being able to question a little more, not that he was involved in the. In being in fraud, in being fraudulent, certainly not. We don't think um, he was just unfortunate that that he got duped by the thing. Um, it also has my one of my favourite objects, perhaps in archaeology, found found associated with Piltdown Man, and that was a bone implement club, if we want to call it that, um, which is also fr- entirely fraudulent, um, uh, but associated um, with the with the skull and and the bottom of that um is the shape it looks very very similar in shape and size to a cricket bat and it's known as the piltdown cricket bat 
Um, what better for an Englishman to have, a first Englishman to have done a cricket bat? There we go. <laughs> Um, thank you for explaining that. And I think that was a really interesting uh, detail in the book as well, explaining kind of what that looked like. And then as uh, Patrick, I believe you were mentioning kind of the idea of interacting and reacting to objects, um, you yourselves encountered or got to see this cricket bat. Um, and I don't remember which of you wrote it in the book, but the idea of kind of you had heard it described this, that it was like a cricket bat, but somehow seeing it was really quite striking just how similar it was. <laughs> Um, so that's a, I, I can see why you wanted to include it in the book and also why it was the first case, because in a lot of ways it kind of break, creates a lot of these themes that then get followed throughout. Um, and so one of those themes is this idea of kind of you don't see it until you do um, and that the re- there's a reputation aspect involved. And this came up, it seems, in um, one of the cases you mentioned where you're at the Getty Museum in uh, Southern California. Um with these, this incredible statue. Um, but you detail in the book that even when it was initially being looked at to be purchased by the museum, there were people involved at the museum who were like, mm, I'm not sure this is what it says it is. Right then, in that initial assessment. And yet they bought it anyway, um, not as a fraud, like they bought it saying it was the real thing. Um, and then it was only with much further investigation that different conclusions were being drawn. So why both from the art side and from the sort of financial side, would a museum like the Getty buy something that there were concerns with even early on? Is That's me, isn't it, Patrick? Yes. Well, <laughs> uh, if- I was just waiting for you to say something wise then. Um, um, Let me have a go. Um, Yes. Um, I think a lot of objects are questioned to a greater or lesser extent. This isn't unusual for people to have different opinions about objects. This is a spectacular object. um, And curators all over the world, really would like spectacular objects to be right um, and to come to their museum. Um, and I think that's totally natural. That's to- you know, totally what you'd think. And in the end, if you have people saying, well, I don't like this aspect of it and I don't like that, and others saying, but, I, but this is really good and this is really good. And it is sort of um, these, these uh, uh, kurai uh, are, are quite unusual and they're all that they're rare, they're all slightly different. This one, again, is slightly different to the to others, has different features. So it was an academic discussion going on as to, as to whether it was, it was right or whether it was not. Um, and they decided they would both go with it. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, I think it's, and it's only relatively recently that they've taken it off display. Um, so uh, they, they, they always reflected um, when it was on display in the, uh, the card that I said, I can't remember the date, but um, I, it says either, either 5,500, uh, sorry, either 550 BC or a modern copy um, was what the, card, the museum guard said. Um, so, yeah, um, but now I think it's swung from, as you were saying, from being more positive to negative than negative to more negative than positive now. And so it's now off display, uh, which is a bit of a shame because it is a really, really interesting object. 
um, but it probably isn't right. Well, the opportunity, the opportunity back then was was so big. This is such a rare. There's, there's perhaps ten in the world, um, and so they are going to be. All of them are going to be quite different. So, as Andrew said, it's an academic discussion. Is this is is this a slightly later or a slightly earlier variety or from a different region? But for the from the museum standpoint, they are such high profile objects. This. This would have been, it was the news of the year that the Getty got one of these and they were on display and you could go out to Malibu and see one of these live. And so then in an, even in an academic discussion, that must have been at play. We want this to be right. It is such an opportunity. So unless there is an absolute red flag, um, we're going to go for it because it's so important. Um, and at the time, the Getty was... Um, purchasing these these very high end objects to to make a name for itself because they they've just come into a lot of money from the Getty inheritance. They had the opportunity uh, in terms of, of of buying power and in terms of of displaying these objects. So then it becomes rather hard to say no to something like that. So that's that must have been at play uh, in that discussion as well. If not in the foreground, in the background of the academic discussion, it must have been an aspect. Thank you for explaining that. I think it helps highlight sort of the complexity of these sorts of discussions. Um, And as you've already mentioned, I believe, Andrew, that kind of, it's not always clear whether something is real or right or not. Like sometimes, even with all of the science we currently have, it's not always absolute. Um, and that must be even more complicated when you're thinking about buying it and thinking about the bigger picture of your museum. Um, so to stay on this idea of people's reactions to a thing and the investment people have in an object, uh, you include as one of your cases the Vinland map. Could you please perhaps tell us a little bit about kind of what this map actually is as an object and what people thought it was? Mm-hmm. Um, and then explain if you can, why were so many everyday people incredibly invested in the veracity of this map? So the Vinland map is is an alleged early 15th century uh, map on parchment showing the contours of the known world at the time. And it includes North America. It can it includes basically the boundaries or the, the, the borders of, of the North American continent about half a century before the um, before the official discovery by Columbus. And so you have um, the discussion of whether um, North America was, was discovered by the Norse or by um, Spanish-Italian um, people. And so um, we now know that the... The Norse people were, in fact, uh, in North America earlier than than the official date of discovery, fourteen ninety two. But that's from archaeological evidence, um, and that's quite recent. This this map um, would have been a map of the known world and would have changed um, history of the discovery of the Americas significantly. And so, when when this map um, was discussed or came up for for purchase. Um, there was a debate um, in North America between people of Scandinavian descent, uh, the Italian community, um, sort of claiming who was first um, to discover the Americas and, and, and sort of 
these communities were in in separate areas um, in those decades, and it, it became sort of uh, an issue, uh, not to say a real fight, but but a sort of dissent debate: um, who really discovered the Americas first, and implying that who had the most right to be there. Um, and that is, of course, a very sensitive subject. And I feel that this this perhaps still lingers on in the discussion around the map of, of um, heritage and, and, and descent. Um, and that continues up to today. And then nowadays, People are with social media and, and alternate facts, etc. People are, are simply more prone to conspiracy theory or or um, uh, more aware of, of, of such um, such processes. And so, in all um, objects that might be forged or faked or um, or right or wrong that will always be a part of the debate of, of, of why was this done and, and, and we know that these things happen and, and conspiracies do happen. And so that sort of lingers on in all these these uh, cases um, where, where objects might be right or wrong and, and, and say truly say uh, or truly show what, what they are. Uh, in the case of the, of the Vinland map, it's, it's interesting because um, the consensus is that this is in fact, uh, an early 15th century parchment, but that was modified, and so that the map, the drawing, is is not authentic, while the parchment is, um, and so um, it is a forgery. Um, would be the consensus. Um, however, the forgery actually tells the truth, because we now know from archaeology that the Americas were in fact first discovered by the Norse and not by um, Columbus and and his um, party. So. Um, it sort of flows um, from from one side to the other, uh, right or wrong, um, and is the message right or wrong? And that's that's very complicated. Um, and in in the reaction of people to such objects, that that just reflects uh, that complicatedness of of all these objects. Wonderful, thank you, Andrew. Do you want to add anything about the Vinland map or people's reactions? I, mean, I think. I just add something completely different to, uh, to people's reactions. We were talking about complexity. Um, uh, one of the arguments about the Vinland map is about the ink, uh, composition of the ink. Um, and there are scientific teams who both agree that the ink has titanium in it. Um, so where everyone agrees essentially with the facts, but the teams came to exactly the opposite conclusions from the same facts. Um, one team saying, well, it's, that means that it must be wrong. It must be a modern fake. And the other bit saying it must, well, that means it must be right from the same facts. Um, so that's that's the same sort of thing we're talking about with the Getty Chorus, uh, where you know where we get you get it gets very complex quite quickly. Because we have that example um, so neatly distilled of sort of one fact that's interpreted different ways, perhaps you could help those of us who don't do this off. Uh, <laughs> this is not our profession. How do you get from the fact of there is titanium in the ink? to two completely separate conclusions. Patrick, do you want to have a go at that one? It's an endless debate, isn't it? Um, first of all, the, the measurement uh, of simply of titanium as um, a part of the ink. Um, there was a debate whether the data were true, whether um, what was measured uh, gave uh, an accurate um, measure of the titanium, and so um, because this is, these are very valuable objects, 
um, both historically and um, and monetarily, um, you cannot simply cut a piece from the parchment and and destroy it in analysis. So often you have to go to non-invasive ways of measuring um, contents of certain elements. Um, and so some new techniques were used on on um, particularly the Vindant map. And so these techniques, as with any technique in the beginning of, of developing that analysis, they were imperfect. And so there was a lot of time spent on whether analysis were representative for the whole object, whether you are actually measuring um, a part of, of the map that represents the whole of the map, um, and whether the calculations you do with your technique reflects a real content or whether there is an aberration there. Um, and so several techniques um, were tried for the first time or, or in, in a realistic case for the first time on the Vinland map. And then um, when that sort of settles down, like, okay, the technique works and these are the true values, then comes the discussion of um, anachronisms. Basically, with this titanium, you're looking for something anachronistic. If this is truly an early 15th century um, drawing of a map using ink of the time, what would be the composition of the ink? Uh, how would you make the ink? What are the materials that you would use? And what is the chemical composition uh, of these materials? And so then you get a debate, is it possible that an ink in that period would be made of a material that contains A and B and C? And would it be possible that titanium would be naturally in those ingredients of the time? And so the debate then goes on to... Um, Titanium is considered uh, an, an element that is used um, in modern inks and you would not find um, at all in ancient inks versus, oh no, you could use natural resources if you made your ink with this and this component, then you could have these titanium-rich minerals in there and so um, it could be a, a natural ink that you would use in, in those days. And then what is often done is compare... Um, to known objects or, or objects from the time that are known to be real, that are from secure context that we know that stem from the time. And then you should do the analysis on the true objects and compare to um, the object under investigation. In, in this case, you would compare the Vindant map to other manuscripts uh, of the period that we know are really of the period. And again, um, that showed that none of these other manuscripts of the early 15th century had this particular chemical composition, this particular makeup. But then the debate starts again, oh, but it might be a one-off. And then we're again in, in the Getikura scenario. What if um, there's only one off? What if this object is truly unique? Then we have no comparanda. Then how can we say this is anachronistic? And so the way you want to look, the way you want to interpret um, data are data. And, and after a certain uh, amount of time and development of techniques, we know it will be this content in titanium and it represents this particular mineral and this particular resource. Yes, we've measured correctly. But then comes the interpretation. Can we find this element, this resource, this mineral in raw materials of the time? And then it becomes a bit of an interpretation. And then there might be 
uh, 90% of the people say, no, this, this, you know, comparing to other materials, this is simply wrong. It, we don't see it elsewhere. It must be anachronistic. Then you will still have uh, the option out uh, if you want to truly believe in the object that, oh, but this is a one-off. It was some original recipe and they used this and that natural material and, and hence ended up with that composition. And in this way, you can always come to... to um, uh, other conclusions with the same data. And then it becomes more or less a, a statistical game. How likely is it to be um, true or not? That's a difficult discussion. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, I think it's really interesting. And obviously, you do discuss this uh, in the book and you go into this amount of really intriguing detail in a lot of the other cases. Uh, so thank you for sort of highlighting it in this one instance. Um, and I kind of want to stay on this idea of starting to understand sort of how the science and the facts and the interpretation sort of all interlink in these kinds of cases um, and ask another sort of question of how do you figure something out? And specifically, why is it so hard to determine whether a marble statue is a fraud? Oh, yes. Um, by extension, uh, I think in the book we call Stone the Prince of Materials for <laughs> Forgers. Um, if, if you take a stone object and you shape it, and, and you're pretty good at it as a forger, um, you have the hand and, and the eye, and, and you, you can really make the object in terms of shape look like an ancient object. The only thing as, as, as an expert that you can do is either judge from the shape. That's what connoisseurs do. They have this eye. They look at whether the object is right, feels right or not from its shape, from its form, from what it expresses. Or you can analyze an object and see whether the materials are of the period of the time. Again, looking for an anachronistic um, feature or not. But in terms of stone, if you if you get a stone somewhere from a quarry that was used in set time period, it will have all the characteristics of that stone. It will be the same material. And then analyzing the stone, uh, in this case, a marble, 
um, if you use the marble that was used in antiquity, this, the same type of marble, you will find no differences between an object that is 2,000 years old or an object that was made yesterday. And um, even in absolute dating, sometimes objects can be dated in an absolute way. We can, we can tell it was made 2,000 years ago. We have dating techniques with stone. If you date the stone, you date the date of the geology. You give a time period of the formation of the stone. And again, um, that doesn't say anything about when stone was shaped into the object. And so because you go from, from basically a naturally material that is unaltered and only changed in, in shape and form into this priceless object, you have very little to go on in, in a scientific way um, to see whether when this was shaped. If you have an artist, be it present time or many, many years ago, um, if they have the same hand, the same approach to the material and can, in a real case, make the object uh, uh, a lot of time, a long time ago, or, or make the object in a similar way yesterday, there will be no difference that you can measure scientifically. And so it is the prime material um, to forge uh, an object because the material will be identical as long as you use stone from the same quarry or the same region or the same area, then you will find no difference. Marble actually is at the better end um, in stone because there are they, they are so well known. Marble quarries used in antiquity and they are well characterized. So you really need to find um, the exact stone, the exact marble, and then copy your object if you would want to forge a marble statue. Uh, there are stone types that are that are more ubiquitous and that you can find anywhere, and and so so it would be even easier um, to to use as a, as a forgery material because science will tell you nothing in their analysis. So stone is 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 something if if you have the the hand of the artist to to really copy. Um, the style and the form of the ancient equivalent, science will give you very little uh, surplus to, to to tell you that it's wrong. Um, it, then you, you fall back entirely to the art historical aspect and to the eye of the connoisseur to investigate that object. So in fact, that's a perfect um, lead into a question I was going to ask later on, but I'd love to ask now, mm-hmm. which is, about connoisseurs, um, which you talk about in the book, and you've already suggested a little bit in that answer, Patrick, um, have a ton of power in the art market. So how and why, you know, how do connoisseurs do what they do? Why is it so powerful? Um, help us understand this aspect of the kind of work that you both do. I think Andrew's best placed. Uh, he deals most with connoisseurs, I think. Okay, so... A connoisseur um, essentially is a specialist um, in the area. They'll be a specialist in the period or they'll be a specialist in a, um, in a particular type of object, particular material perhaps. Um, and they'll be a specialist because they've been looking at this material for often for decades. Um, and if they work in a, uh, particularly in an auction house, um, they will have seen sometimes thousands of the, these objects come through the auction house over the years. Um, there are connoisseurs in museums as well, but museum connoisseurs tend to look at their own museum collection mostly, whereas the, the art world, they see a lot, lot more numbers of objects just simply because it's coming through, coming through the system. 
Um, so they develop what what is called the uh, the eye, um, uh, a way of, of of being able to tell that an object is correct, is right, is is, is genuine, or, or whether it isn't. Um, and it's fascinating to watch them do that because working alongside them, they'll look at an object and you get the, and, and I've asked them about, they get a distinct impression. They make a, a decision on an object within seconds. They just know whether the object is right or whether it's wrong. Um, and I've asked them, you know, how do you know? And, and then they're trying to reverse engineer how they know that it's that it's that it's it's it's, it's right or wrong, and now they'll, they'll talk about oh well maybe you know, the the painting's not quite right or it's just slightly the wrong colour the painting is not a very good painting, um, it's just slightly the wrong size, um, but you feel like they're justifying their 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 oh, what do we call it a prejudice but their first impression of the object, and and the thing is that overwhelmingly they're right as well they just do know their objects because they they have studied them for such a long period of time occasionally we find uh, one or two that they think are right and, and, and turn out to be wrong but but mostly they're absolutely right why are they such a power in the market because someone who's buying something wants to know um that the object is what 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 it's supposed to be um and, and so there'll be a sale catalog or there'll be uh, a dealer an expert connoisseur who will say yeah this is what i think it is um, um and maybe this is why i think it is that uh, and the buyer will rely on, on that expert um to be correct uh, and as i say almost always they are correct and if they start to get it wrong um and they get multiple ones wrong, or they get a very big, important object wrong, then they'll find that their their ability to sell objects is severely, severely, um, it doesn't work so well. They, they will not be able to sell as well or for so much if they start to get their opinions wrong. Science works alongside. Scientists work alongside um, specialists, uh, connoisseurs, specialists, art historians, and um uh, visual art specialists. Thank but you they, for but, explaining that. Sorry, please yeah. continue. No, I was just going to say that um, we have not the time or, or, or the energy or the resources to analyse so many many objects. that, that they, they can do so many more objects than we can. We, we, we will do a tiny percentage. Um, and we're really relying on them to flag up objects that they're not they're not sure about. Mm. So that's where we come in. It's a that partnership. Yeah, no, that really makes sense of the uh, kind of the ecosystem almost of all the different types of expertise and how they interlink. Um, and one of the questions I sort of have, we talked a little bit about with the Piltdown Man, the idea that kind of suddenly uh, one of them had like this, you know, walking home from his lab and went, oh my God, wait, this might not be real. And then as soon as they looked, they found a bunch of things wrong with it, but it took a while. Um, and obviously we haven't gone into every case that's in the book, but it's a theme throughout. And I believe Patrick, you mentioned it earlier that um, sometimes as soon as you think something is a fraud, you start to see that immediately, like really quite quickly, as soon as the idea of a, the possibility of a fraud exists, that enables kind of a breakthrough. What, why in your experience, particularly given 
Um, yes, I suppose you don't look at as many objects as a connoisseur, but quite a lot of objects in your partnership together. Why do you think it is that this kind of cognitive shift um, needs to happen before you can see fraudulent aspects? Or why? What, what, what can we understand about this relationship between something being a fraud and the idea that it could be? If we use a sort of related example, imagine you go into a gallery uh, and there on the wall uh, is a painting and there's the curator standing beside you um, and the curator says, here we are, here is here is a Monet um, and you look at the Monet and you think how wonderful it's painted and look at the fine detail and Monet is so good at these sorts of things, the, um, such a perfect hand, you know, it's, it's wonderful. Um, but if you put another person in, or you put the same person in, um, and the curator standing beside it, and and the curator says, "Oh, this is a copy of cop, a recent copy of a Monet," um, and you look at it and you think, "Yeah, it's not quite, it's not quite right, is it? It's, it's, it, it, it's, you know, the colours aren't quite right in the painting. Um, and Monet was so much better than this, um, and, but yet you're looking at the same, the same object. Yeah, it, it's just that information that you have in your mind that's making you see it." in a different way um and that it's that switch that that sudden doubt that might that you might be flicking from one to the other um patrick what do you think yeah it's sometimes it's it's when you sometimes when we see objects that are wrong you think how could anyone ever have considered this to be right it is so obvious um again that has to do with with the mindset you come into um the room and look at objects or touch them and if if you come with a certain doubt um it will be more easy to to find arguments to doubt uh, about um when you come into a room with the mindset of i am going to see this fantastic object and and it'll be a great day um you simply don't want to see it um and and with for instance with build down um the the, the filing marks uh, on the teeth and the way um the fossils were stained etc they are so obvious yet for decades nobody seemed to want to see it um it's how you start, start how you start looking at objects. How you how you come into the room and and start looking. That's that's something that determines your entire mindset and strategy of, of going about uh, looking and feeling these objects. It's neurology, really. I think. <laughs> um, great, thank you for uh, explaining that. And it's really interesting how it does come up in a bunch of these different cases. Um, Something I wanted to ask about is more towards the end of the book, um, following a sort of discussion along the lines, so obviously in more detail than what we've had about sort of connoisseurs and how they play into the art market and understanding of art. Um, you discuss in the book um, restoration and conservation efforts um, and how there's quite a difference between how people react to that, how kind of the general public, the general audience that goes to a museum and looks at things reacts differently to this idea of restoration or conservation when it's archaeological objects versus objects that are considered art. So that's another kind of, you know, distinction in a mindset. Could you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, it's, it's art is art. So it has to be 
nice and, and spectacular and telling and relevant. Archaeology is ancient and has to be true. It has to be a true representation of how people lived in the past and how they interacted with their environment. And so art has has sort of the... the it is allowed for um, art to be not genuine or deceiving or, or a bit patched up or reconstructed. Um, it, is, it is a sort of inherent characteristic of art to sometimes be provocative or um, be relevant to to the now um, to, to, to when you're in this museum and looking at this art or archaeology simply has to be true it has to be a true representation and in the book we discuss the um, reconstruction of the site of Knossos um, in Greece and there um, the reconstruction has taken a number of liberties in in reconstructing buildings and showing architecture and daily life with educational purposes, um, all all in good spirit, um, but it's not the true representation. And so there comes a reaction to that archaeological reconstruction. Oh, but it's not real. It's not true. While for art, there is a certain liberty that you can take in art in in in. Um, as long as the message comes across and and its nature is right, you can reconstruct it. You can um, patch it up, conserve it. It has to be kept. Uh, for archaeology, there's there's a lot less allowance for that. Andrew. Yeah, um, I think it's a different attitude. It can be a different attitude uh, between museums. Um, it can be a different attitude within the same museum. So there are a number of museums which are, which are art and archaeology museums were set up as such. Um, uh, and in that museum, um, if a painting is damaged or a painting starts to deteriorate, they'll be quite happy to gently um, touch up the painting to make sure the painting looks new, essentially, um, virtually. Um, and yet they'd never do that with an archaeological object now. Um, so it... It, yeah, it's just a very different way of, of looking at things. And I've asked them, you know, why don't you do that um, with with archaeological objects? And and oh well, you you want as Patrick was saying, you, you want they need to be they need to be true somehow. Whereas art can can be can be perfect. Archaeology needs to be true. Um, so yes, I think it's a really interesting, a really interesting difference, and it's different between different cultures as well um because another outside perhaps outside perhaps the uk and america archaeological objects are restored um and archaeological sites are restored as well you know to what extent to a much greater extent than we would do now here interesting really interesting discussion um so i'm glad we've got to put a little bit of that into the interview um so a lot of this book in some senses is sort of letting us behind the scenes of your sort of work which is quite often done behind the scenes um and is kind of going behind what we can see in a museum or a gallery um but i'd love to know a little bit about the behind the scenes of writing this book so is there anything perhaps one from each of you of something you came across in the research or writing of this book that was surprising to you i mean I, i'll start if you like on that one um uh, we started to look because we're scientists, and because we we're not well, we work with the art market. We don't sell things. I don't often even ask how much the object that I'm working on 
we'll, we'll go for. I just, just don't ask. Um, uh, I suppose I'd be told, but I don't ask. Um, what what has struck me working on this, particularly as we've been working on it for some time now, is the sheer value uh, of some objects. You know, the the, the price things go for. Um, I mean, we were just. Uh, just a, about a week ago, before we were recording this a little more, um, there was uh, a Warhol was sold at Christie's New York um, for the best part of $200 million, um, the second highest price ever paid for a uh, for a, 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 an art object at auction. Um, I mean, it's, that's, that's, that's a lot of money. It's less than half um, the cost of... Uh, the Salvador Monday, which was sold in the same sale rooms for four hundred and fifty million dollars um, in two thousand and I'm trying to get the date right two thousand and seventeen, it was sold. Um, and to give you some sort of idea about that, that painting—I mean, that sounds like a lot of money—but then you think about actually how much that is. That same painting, the Salvador Monday, was was sold, was bought by the owners in a New Orleans uh, auction house for about $1,000 12 years earlier. Yeah. It was what's known as a sleeper, one of those, one of the best, it, it was, is almost certainly the best buy ever, that thousand, those $1,000, paid $1,000 for it. Now, 12 years later, they sell it for, give or take, $450 million. Yeah. That means that that object, that simple piece of wood and canvas, for every single day they owned it, it gained in value $100,000. It gained in value the same price as a rather nice Mercedes every day they owned it for 12 years. That's how much money it is. Um, just incredible, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, and that surprises me every time another, another image goes for hundreds of million dollars of dollars. That is a very evocative way of understanding such a large sum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andrew's a fan. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Patrick, what surprised you? It, it, the, the attitude towards science. Um, sometimes there there is a huge faith in science where science can do everything. If, if we analyze it, we'll know. Um we were trained differently from the academic context. Science has a hypothesis and we look for data and, and possibly we will be able to formulate an answer with a likelihood. And so in many cases, um, when, when you really find evidence of, of this is anachronistic or this doesn't match, yes, we can solve the case. But in in many others, it is a matter of teamwork. So um, you, you put the data of the scientist or the opinion of the scientist next to um, the opinion of the connoisseur and you come to a consensus. And so faith in science, on the one hand, can be overwhelming, uh, which is interesting. Um, on the other hand, when dealing with certain objects, certainly from you know, sensitive objects from a, which have religious meaning or, or, or that type of object. Um, science is, is battered down in the blink of an eye. Um, oh, science must be wrong. Um, the technique, oh, this doesn't work. Oh, for this particular type of object, it couldn't possibly be right. So this, this very, um, this ambiguity in, in attitudes towards science, total confidence versus um, this couldn't possibly work or couldn't possibly be right is, is, is very intriguing. Um, while 
in in our approach in our training we we have learned to to approach any um, scientific question with balance and formulate a hypothesis. It's, it is not absolute. Uh, yet, in in many of these cases, uh, it's it's absolute in many ways. Either side, uh, it'll solve it, or or it it's totally totally ridiculous. <laughs> so um, that that's been absolutely surprising in in dealing with objects and the people around it, and and the general public as well. That must make for a very interesting um, sort of work environment. I suppose you're never going to be bored because there's always different things happening. Um, (laughs) Which brings me to my last question, uh, which is that this book is obviously published and available for people to read. So now that it's out there, what are you each working on next? So we're working working together um, on uh, another book um, uh, on... um, analysis in the art world we're trying to write a book um, that will explain that, that will help the art world understand what science can do for them and what science can't do for them um, so we want it to be engaging and we want it to be accurate um, but we want it to not be sort of fakes in the fakes in the attic sort of um, level it, it needs to be above that um, uh, and so, so, so people can use it as a manual, the sort of thing, so they will know firstly um, which techniques are, you, are, are appropriate for the thing they want they what they want to do, um, and, and hopefully it, it'll mean that they, if they approach a laboratory, the laboratory suggests something rather unusual, um, they will at least have enough information there to be able to say, "Are you really sure that will work, or is that just going to cost me a lot of money um, and not come to an answer?" So that's, I think, what we're trying to do um, uh, individually. I'll say my individual one, then Patrick can come in. Um, I'm I'm interested in, in in cobalt. Cobalt is a pigment. Cobalt is colour, um, and we're working with a with a Norwegian cobalt mine that was in existence in in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, um, and tracing their shipping out of cobalt pigment, making of this cobalt pigment from their mines and shipping it. Uh, out to the Low Countries, to Amsterdam, to, to to England, and then all the way out uh, to China, where it's been made into Chinese uh, into enamel on Chinese porcelain. So it's a magnificent story of this small Norwegian mine um, shipping things literally halfway around the world. Uh, I'm, I'm quite interested in that. Patrick, over to you. Yeah, um, another thing we're working together on, apart from from the new book and, and cobalt is antimony it's it's another one of those forgotten elements or, or forgotten metals um in antiquity or in ancient times antimony was used uh, a lot in in the earliest glass uh in early metallurgy and so we're trying to find out where was this this um this substance mined how was it used how was it exchanged in what form did it travel around the world because it's used in 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 so many applications in so many cultures from from the bronze age onwards uh, and it evolves in 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 how it is used uh what it is used for so it, it gives us an insight into how uh people look for resources, how they exchange those resources, what they use them for, interaction between areas, between peoples. Um, that's another interest of ours, very much similar to, to the cobalt story, but then set a, a lot earlier, a couple of thousand years earlier on how, how that technology evolved and where uh, people got their materials then. Um, wow. Yeah. 
Okay, well, those are three very cool projects. So thank you for sharing them with us. I'm sure there will be listeners who want to follow along. Um, But while you are off working on those projects, listeners can read the book we've been talking about this episode, which as a reminder is titled When Art Isn't Real, The World's Most Controversial Objects Under Investigation. Thank you very much, Dr. Andrew Shortland and Dr. Patrick DeGreese for joining us and sharing your insights with us today. Thank you very much for having us. Yes, it's been a delight. Thank you. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu visit.